Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the place to get your digital audiobooks. Over at audible.com, there are hundreds of thousands of titles to choose from in a wide variety of genres, and you can play them on your iPhone, your Kindle, your Android, whatever you got. And here is the deal, everybody. Right now, for listeners of this program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial. Go get some classic books by some great Russian authors. Get a selection of short stories by Anton Chekhov, narrated by Stephen Fry. Get War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy, or How About Fathers and Sons by Ivan Turgenev. Any one of these titles can be yours, free of charge. And if you do this, if you go get the freebie, it helps the show. I get a little kickback. That is enjoyable. To download your free audiobook, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. This is an amazing deal. It is available right now. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. All right, everybody, right. here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is about human beings who stare at flashing cursors. This is ultimately about words. It's good to be with you. Thank you for tuning in. We are now at episode 97. Episode 97. We are rapidly approaching the 100 episode mark. Can you believe it? That is coming up on August 29th, 2012. So stay tuned. Uh, I want to wish happy birthday to my sisters. Their birthday was yesterday, as a matter of fact. Uh, Lauren and Aaron. Lauren and Aaron, that's hard to say, my sisters, both of them born on August 18th, uh, both of them born on the same day, seven years apart, and uh, I don't even think they listen to this program, but I'm wishing them happy birthday anyhow. Uh, I do have vague memories of my younger sister being born. I obviously can't remember my older sister being born, uh, but I do remember my younger sister being, vo- uh, being born in a very vague way, not the actual childbirth moment, not the, uh, not the emergence, but... Uh, I remember going to the hospital to visit my mother and my new infant sibling. And uh, most distinctly, I remember saying goodbye to my mom. I was, I was four years old, I guess, at the time. And my mother was in the hospital, and she had to stay an extra night uh, as a matter of uh, routine. And so I went to visit, and then I had to leave. And what I remember 
is I remember crying as I was saying goodbye and the elevators, uh, you know, the elevator doors were slowly closing. So how's that for some sadness? And uh, speaking of elevators, I wanted to share with you an idea that I have for a reality show. I have these ideas for reality shows from time to time. And this particular idea involves a guy uh, who gets on elevators and confronts people. It's a very simple concept. There's not much to it. The entire thing, the entire show takes place in public elevators rigged with hidden cameras. And all of the action unfolds in this tiny enclosed space. And uh, the guy, the star of the show, whoever it is, uh, he will confront people over and over again in a variety of ways. He will do strange things. He will ask people to dance. He will ask them extremely unusual and possibly invasive questions and so on. And then I have uh, another idea uh, for another reality show that is possibly even a bit more unusual. It is a dance competition show where all of the contestants, as a rule, uh, will be extremely drunk. And they will be uh, competing to see who can dance the most sincerely, the most seriously, to the song What's Going On by Marvin Gaye. Uh, that is the only song that people uh, would be dancing to on the show. That's it. And uh, the show itself would be called What's Going On, as I have conceived it. So uh, stop for a moment if you can picture this. Uh, imagine you've got like Ryan Seacrest hosting this thing or someone like that. And then you've got these contestants uh, who are, are just unbelievably shit-faced on tequila uh, or whiskey or something of that nature. And then uh, the song What's Going On comes on, if you can imagine it. So let me bring it up here just to kind of help out. And, uh, and then the contestants come out and they have to dance and they have to maintain a neutral facial you know, expression the entire time. And if they smile or stumble or anything of that nature, they are disqualified, it's game over, and uh, that's the end of the competition. So there you have it, folks. Those are my latest ideas for the future of television. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Oksana Marafiotti. She is the author of a new memoir called American Gypsy. It is now available from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Uh, Oksana has led a very interesting life. She was born in Latvia. She grew up in Russia as part of a large family of traveling Romani musicians. She immigrated to the United States at the age of 15, shortly before the collapse of the former Soviet Union, 
It's an incredible story. She wrote a book about it. She and I are going to talk all about it right now. This right here, ladies and gentlemen, is my conversation with Oksana Marafioti, the author of American Gypsy. I'm definitely getting a lot of very strange questions and reactions, something I've never expected before. Like what? Um, you know, people asking me when I joined the cult and when I ran away with the gypsies, you know, just really strange things. Like um, one of the recent questions was, um, with my background, how was I able to go to college? You know, and to somebody else, that might be a pretty uh, normal question to ask a gypsy. But from where I come from, you know, there's plenty of gypsies who have formal education. So to them, it's nothing. You know, they go to college because they want to go to college. But yeah, okay. But so people, you think, are misperceiving the actual reality of it, and they're because, like, to be honest, I know so little about this. So <laughs> when I hear gypsy, I'm thinking like homeschooled. I'm thinking like on the road. Maybe you're reading some books and you're getting some sort of streetwise education, but that's obviously not the case in every instance. Not at all. I mean, I do homeschool, but it has nothing to do with being a gypsy. You homeschool your I own do. kids? Yes. You do? Yes. You teach them everything? I teach them almost everything. I think and more. Wow. Okay. So this is interesting because I've had this thought, I've had this conversation before because now I'm a parent. And when it comes to homeschooling, there are two things that would stop me from doing it. One, I don't think I'm smart enough to teach every subject. I think it's a lot to ask. You have to be pretty on top of things, like uh, academically. And then two, uh, socially, like, do you do you think that like your you know your children lose anything by not having that kind of like day to day social interaction with lots of other kids? I don't think so. I think they actually socialize more when they're out of school because if you think about it, when kids are in school, they're stuck in one class with a few kids that they hang out with. They don't actually socialize with the entire school, and they don't socialize with adults. At all. I mean, they're told what to do, but they cannot really interact as much as they want to because they're usually told not to. They have to follow instructions. Right. Where the kids that are homeschooled, they have a chance to go to many more places. For example, my kids, they go to kung fu schools. They go to music schools. They, they take go to kung fu? Classes. Yes. Okay. So you they know, can they can kick ass in very, addition. Yes. <laughs> I mean, my oldest spends the last time he was there for 12, 12 hours. He didn't want to leave. He was there all day. He was helping with the classes. And so he's getting plenty of socializing with all the groups, you know, little kids, adults, and everything in between. Right. And then what about your, like, I mean, you, can you teach uh, trigonometry? Are you going to be able to do this? Well, you know, I'm going to get to one of those how-to books <laughs> and just go that way. I mean, it's not as hard as you think because it's it's one-on-one. So what happened in my case, I'm not very good at mathematics at all. Um, and if there was something I didn't know, I either asked my husband, uh, just because he's a little bit better at that, or we would just go and, and research and find the answer. So in the process of finding the answer, you would actually learn very well. It's an education for mm -hmm. you. Wow. That's interesting. So let's, uh, just to bring this back to you and to your book, uh, and to your life story, uh, you know, before we get into you and like how you were educated and how you came up as a child and, you know, the move to the States and everything else. Um, why don't you, just so people have some context, can you describe or, or try to explain in a nutshell Roma uh, culture? Am I pronouncing that right? Roma or Romani. Yeah, Romani. So like, what is it? Just so people know, because I don't think a lot of listeners will know. You're right. And actually, most people don't even know it's a culture. I, I come across many people who ask if, if it's a lifestyle, because that's what they've assumed for many years. It is a culture, and it's a culture that has many cultures within it. So there's not one way of describing it. 
I mean, Romani originally came from India. That was about 900 years ago. And they've spread out all over the world. And they've kind of stayed true to where they came from. So some of the older traditions um, are still there. But they've also picked up a lot of traditions of other cultures, um, depending on where they live. So you can't really say, you know, Romanis are this way or that way because there's so much diversity within the group. Are there, are there like, like major, um, you know, subcultures within the culture? Do you know what I'm saying? Are there major groups within it? There, there are. You know, this reminds me of, um, I don't know if you played this game as a, as a younger person called The Masquerade. Do you remember that game? No. Uh-uh. I was kicked the can. <laughs> Ghost in the Graveyard. Well, it was pretty popular. It was a role-playing game, kind of like the, what is it, Warhammer or something like that that's really popular now with kids. Um, but it kind of reminds me of that, that universe where there are groups and they're, um, they have specific characteristics um, attributed to each group. The Romani culture reminds me of that because there are groups that are um, uh, separated by what they do. You know, they're people... Uh, I mean, nowadays it's a little bit more diluted because there's, you know, most people don't stick to that old tradition. But the, in the old days, there were uh, gypsy groups who were primarily horse trainers or horse traders. Um, there were others who just did blacksmithing. And so all the people within that group, um, they would carry these last names that would re- uh, direct, you know, if you heard that last name, you would know that that person is a smith or that person is a horse trader um, or that person is a musician. And if you look at the ancient Indian culture, they're separated into sects, uh, sects um, where it's, it's basically the same thing. Um, you're separated by what you do or where you were born, and you have to basically stay within that group. Okay, so but what are you bound together by? Like we, I know what now, like what separates based mm-hmm. on essentially what you do for a living. Um, but like what are the commonalities among the different sects? It's basically ethnicity. Uh, most of it is ethnicity. The language, even if you speak a different dialect, um, you can understand other dialects pretty easily. Okay. Um, and, so there, yeah, there are lots of different dialects within Romani culture. There's right? hundreds and hundreds. Right. Yes. And then what about, like, behaviorally? Because, like, like, you know, is gypsy considered a pejorative term to people yes. in Romani culture? Yes. Okay. So because, like, that's how people commonly know of it, mm-hmm. especially people, like, from the States who go over and travel in Europe and you see these people and it's like, oh, those are the gypsies. Mm-hmm. Is that what, you know, is that what we're talking about, the same thing? Yes. And so, you know, when I hear that term, I'm thinking of people like roving bands that are of, of nomads, essentially. But that's not always the case. No, and it's almost never the case nowadays, simply because it's almost impossible to live that nomadic lifestyle in most countries. Yeah, I was going to say, I was like, how do you even pull that off? No, you really can't. I mean, you can try. And there are some people that kind of try to stick to that that way of life, kind of like those people that uh, buy those fifth wheels, you know, and just go and travel all over the country because they just want to live on the road. So there's still people that want to do that within any culture, including the Romani culture. Right. But most are pretty settled in. And just doing their thing. Yeah. So what was your group? What, like, what was your background? Like, give, give people, like, maybe, uh, a, you know, a, uh, the beginnings of your life story, where, where you were born and then, you know, how you kind of grew up as a young child. I was born in Riga, Latvia, in the former Soviet Union, and... I was born into a family of performers, basically a stage family. And my grandparents were in charge of the show. My grandfather was the leader of the show. My grandmother was the diva of the show. And most of the other musicians in the group were relatives, you know, cousins, uncles, what have you. And um, 
a lot of people assume when I say that, that we led a, a nomadic lifestyle because we were traveling with this performing group all over the country. But it's not the case. It was literally like, you know, rock stars on the tour bus. That's basically what were you we were on a doing. tour bus? Yes, all the time. Okay, and how big of a group were we? How many? Like one About tour 30, bus? About 30 people. So it's usually a couple of buses, or we would usually take the train um, because that was just easier to travel with all the equipment and the costumes and all of that. Like, like a like a, 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 a like a professional, not like your own train. You didn't have no. Your, okay, <laughs> no, that did not exist in <laughs> okay. Soviet Union. I didn't know if you had your own like steam engine or something. <laughs> No. That would be nice, but we had usually the, the last three or four carts of the, yeah, of the train. So that so was it kind sounds of like cool. a party. Was there a lot of like, uh, was it festive? Very much so. I mean, think, imagine thirty people, at least half of them are men, and what happens, as you are probably familiar with, is uh, many people, you know, have fun and drink a little bit before the show to kind of loosen up. Right. And it just continues afterwards. So yeah, because then you're all charged up after the show, and like with all that adrenaline, you sort of need to like take the edge off or oh yeah and usually you know you'll have fans that go backstage and they want to take you out i mean it was exactly the same as what you would expect from like a pop star rock star so, lifestyle so you were descended from romani rock stars essentially yeah yeah so what kind of music How it was it was mostly actually traditional romani music and russian music but in the former soviet union those styles were really really popular you know we essentially really didn't have pop music our rock rock music was really against the law, you know. So what my parents did, you know, the, on stage they would go and they would sing these traditional Russian and Romani songs. But my father really wanted to play jazz and rock and roll, which was illegal. So what he did is he got a few people from the band, a few guys, and they formed their all their own rock band, and they would perform in underground nightclubs. And play like Led Zeppelin, you know, and Pink Floyd. <laughs> what was the name of the band? I don't remember. Yeah. That nobody ever asked me that question. <laughs> it didn't even have a name. It was underground. I'll have to. <laughs> it was so clandestine that they could not give it a name. Wow. Okay. So where are you in the middle of all this as a child? You're four or five years old, and you must have been having a ball on this uh, tour bus, right? I was. I mean, this was the only lifestyle I really knew. You know, this was before I started school. I didn't go to kindergarten. So I was so used to sleeping on trains that was basically that's how I would go to sleep. If we were at home, I... I would stay up really late because I was like, you know, I don't understand what's going on. Yeah, why, is, why is this thing not moving? <laughs> There's no dressing room. You know, the <laughs> lights are not on. People are not screaming. Right. So it was a lot of fun. Now, and how, big are the, how big were the crowds that came out to see, uh, you know, your family's uh, performance? You're talking about they were huge. Thousands of people. Um, Stadiums? Well, no. Like theaters? Theaters. Theaters. Yeah, okay. because I don't think there were such a thing as stadiums. For performing arts right. in the Soviet Union. Okay. Um, but theaters, definitely. So where did you tour? Just all over the former Soviet Union, or were you also going to other countries? No, we were not allowed to leave the country. Right. So just Soviet Union. That's it. Yeah. Just roaming around. And mm -hmm. this continued through most of your childhood? Yes. Even when I went to school, um, any chance I got, I would just go back on the road. You know, if I had my vacations or the summer break, I would be back touring with them did you perform um i tried a couple of times when i was not allowed to i just would run up on stage in the middle of a performance you know wearing my mom's dresses um but no my parents you know my mom is not romani she's greek armenian so she came from a completely different background and she didn't believe that kids should be anywhere on the stage at that young age 
But, you know, I, I kept fighting it. I was like, I have to be there. I have to be on that stage. I have to be in that limelight. Can you sing? Well, I'm not going to say yes, because then you're going to ask me to sing. No, I mean, but you, you <laughs> must have inherited some musicality from your family line, right? Yes. Well, I play classical piano. I'm classically trained okay. pianist. And you're good. I think so. Wow. And I you, hope so, because I'm teaching my sons how to play. And you can sing? Yes. You can sing, and you won't sing anything for me? No. No, like traditional Not Romani, all. nothing. <laughs> I won't sing either, so we're even. Are you sure? I'm positive. I don't well, want to lose you, listeners. <laughs> well, if you were, if you had a choice of a song, like what would you? If I could sing anything? Yes. Oh, God. I don't know. I sing, uh, I sing Somewhere Over the Rainbow and the Rainbow Connection to my daughter before bed. I've got those two down, but I kind of make up some of the words. Uh, and I try to, I think I'm trying to imitate Willie Nelson. And it's, really? it's a very bad approximation. That's just, that's the most I can tell you about my singing voice. Yeah, I think that would sound kind of disturbing if you're using it <laughs> as a lullaby for your child. Yeah, well, you know, and I'm just, or you know, I do Rainbow Connection in, in sort of like a quasi-Kermit the Frog voice. Mm -hmm. But I think, uh, you know, Willie Nelson has covered that song. And so I'm, I'm essentially just trying to imitate what I've already heard. So, like, if I sing other songs, I will usually try to imitate the sound of whoever's singing it well. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I don't know if I have a true voice of my own. I think my own true voice is probably not uh, worth hearing. So I think it's, it's like a shower <laughs> it's, voice. It's just yeah. It should only my ears only. I think it's probably the best strategy. <laughs> That's funny. My son, my youngest son, loves Johnny Cash, but I can't sing his songs for some reason. So I have this Why, be CD because your voice isn't like like twelve octaves deep. Not at all. Yes, <laughs> I've tried. Trust me. Um, so I have this CD of lullabies of Johnny Cash songs. They, they've been recording, recorded as lullabies to sound like a lullaby, but oh. it's Johnny Cash. Is it really him? No. Oh, I mean, somebody that did it in a studio. Like a boy named Sue, but yeah. it's like soft. And, and there's nobody singing, so it's just a melody, but it has that little bells sound. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. He loves it. That's great. I could, I mean, Johnny Cash, I could see him maybe putting out an album. I mean, now that he's gone, <laughs> he's not going to be putting out anything. But I could see potentially how his voice could soothe the child to sleep in the right context now. As long as the lyrics are not you know, yeah. included, I think. Not like I shot a man in Reno <laughs> just, just to watch him die. Um, okay, so young child. It sounds like you had a happy childhood. Were you happy doing all this? I mean, was there any stress involved with all the travel and being separated from family? Like, did that part of it factor in? You know, a little bit when there was conflict. Because there were a lot of problems um, with, you know, just Romanese, you know, you would come across groups that would start fights. So actually there was constant fighting and that was the only thing I didn't like about it. But then I was used to it too. Like fighting within the family or other no, groups, other coming, groups in. coming in, let's say if they would know that we had a concert in this small town somewhere in the middle of nowhere, they would make sure to show up. And then after the show, start a fight, you know, and, and you'd be brawling. Yes. I, that's all I remember of my father. Growing up. It's him brawling. I only remember him flying through the air and punching people in the face. Wow. Yes. So was, he was a good fighter. He was. And he didn't even think about it. You know, as soon as somebody said something, what did you say? Like he was that kind of a, like a... It didn't take much. No, not at all. Not at all. But, you know, I guess you get practice at that. See, I'm the, I'm the opposite of that. I, I mean, not that I'm ever in situations, knock on wood, where people are <laughs> trying to threaten me and want to fight me, but... <laughs> I, it would take a lot. And I think like once you've done it a few times, you know, and maybe you can you get a little bit more fluid in those situations. Um, but I, I, you know, imagining myself in, in uh, that kind of scenario, it's, it's hard for me to 
see flying through the air and throwing a punch. Well, I asked him about that when I was doing some research for the book, and he said basically, you know, you can you begin to know when a person is actually going to go through with it. Like, you know, some people will threaten you, but they're not actually going to fight. Right. So you can see it in their eyes when the intent is there and they're going to follow through. So you said the best thing to do is to do it first. first. You know, it's interesting that you say that because there was a guy, he's a doctor of psychology of some sort, I believe, up in Berkeley. And I'm going to forget his name, but he did, uh, I think Malcolm Gladwell profiled him in The New Yorker. And it, and it was an article called The Naked Face. I actually remember the title of it. But mm-hmm. it was about this guy who has cataloged over the course of his career all of the different micro expressions that a face can make. And there are like scores of them. Uh, and some people are like extraordinarily adept at face reading, which means they can see um, you know, all of these micro expressions as they happen in an instant Mm -hmm. and read somebody's face. And part of the article was about a police officer who was extraordinarily good at knowing when somebody that he was trying to arrest was actually going to be violent, you know, like, so Hmm. sometimes he would shoot and sometimes he wasn't. And on the surface, the situations looked identical, but he sort of knew when the person was seriously going to, you know, pull a trigger or when a person was just scared and wanted out. And it happens quickly, you know? So maybe your dad could read faces. It sounds he like he could. He was really good at telling what people, people's intentions are. Yeah. Plus, I guess you get practice. You're like, that is a exactly. homicidal look in that man's Exactly. <laughs> I mean, he'd tell me some stories where I was like, how, how would you even know that these people were planning on ambushing you around the corner? Like, things like that would happen all the time. And, and uh, did he ever get his ass kicked? All the time. All the time. All the time. Like I bruises remember. and knocked out teeth and oh, stuff? Oh, yeah. I remember one time he got into a fight and my mom and I rode in the ambulance with him in the, to the hospital. It's like I remember this kind of in, in flickering memory thing. You know, I don't remember the entire scene, but his jaw was actually uh, broken in the middle. So it, when he opened his mouth, like one side of his teeth were side – one side was – the teeth was higher than the other side. And it was just – you know, they had to staple it shut, and he couldn't eat anything. But Drinking he was, through a straw. Yeah, but oh. he was happy for some reason. You know, he was just, yeah, you know, I did this, and I punched this guy, and this happened, and that happened. This All he could talk like about is the fight. badass. He's, he was kind of a maniac when it comes to, yeah. I would not want to fight this man. Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so... You go through all this, you're growing up, you're having fun, there's some fights. When it comes, just to like, you know, finish this fighting thing, when it comes to these fights uh, and the rivals, the rivalries between gangs of Romani, like, what was it over? Was it turf wars? Was it like, this is our hometown, don't you come here and perform? Or was it just like, was it just kind of like guys trying to sort of out-macho one another? Sometimes it was both, but the fights were mostly with outsiders. Not between the Romani gangs, but with people who, you know, didn't like gypsies coming to their town, basically. Uh, It It was was just as basic as that. And I think a lot of these people were just an immature kind of, you know, group of men who had really nothing to do. They're living in a small town. There's not much entertainment going on. So instead of saying, you know, let's go cow tipping, (laughs) let's say, hey, there's a gypsy show in town, you know. Right. Let's see what that's all about. Right. So, uh, So when you were off the road... Uh, where were you? I grew up in Moscow. Okay. In a very nice neighborhood. You know, we had a very nice house. Like in the city proper or in the yes. suburbs? In the Well, first in the, in the city and then we moved to suburbs into a nicer house. So it was a really normal childhood other than, you know, when we were on the road. What's it like? I mean, give me like a picture of this. Normal childhood, Moscow, Soviet Union. 
1980s. So, like, what is a Soviet? What is a, a suburb in the Soviet Union? You know, Moscow, 1987, look like? Probably like United States in 1950s. <laughs> okay, know? so there's like a lag. Um, there definitely was, and when I say a normal childhood, my normal childhood was probably different from most Soviet kids because of what my parents did and the con- kinds of connections that they had. You know, most of their friends were famous authors and actors and circus performers so that meant that there was this constant connection with the west so for me a normal childhood let's say if i came home from school and i just wanted something fun to do i would watch you know a five-hour tape a vhs tape of um, mtv videos that my dad got on the black market from somebody they were, were smuggling, most, smuggling they were VHS smuggling, back in those days. Yes, they were smuggling horror flicks and music mostly, you know, videos and... Betamax? Most, yeah. Some Betamax yeah. and some VHS? Yes. Wow. So mostly, most most kids in the, in the Soviet Union wouldn't have that experience. Like, they would never see anything because they didn't show it on TV. Right. I think you got, like, two videos a week from America on TV. So, okay, so were your parents in the upper crust of... Uh, Soviet entertainment culture. Is that a fair yes. assessment? Mm-hmm. So it was basically like you had famous parents. Like you, mm-hmm. you were the child of a rock star. Yes. For all within, But only within the context of the Soviet Union. This was not obviously a global fame. Yes, that's true. I mean, my grandparents had a, a title, kind of like the, the Emmy or the People's Choice Award. They had those titles. So they were even more recognized than my parents were. Wow. Um, but so it, were, it was all in the, were you, the Soviet Union. Were you the, like the first family of Romani musical culture? Or was there, were there no. other families doing it too? Russian and Romani are well known for their music. I mean, if you could put them in a specific group, um, they would be the entertainers. Because many Russian families, that's what they did for uh-huh. a living. Right. And so, but I mean, like, were there, was there competition among those families yes. to see who could be the best? Or oh, yes. Was there, who was the best? Who was considered, like, oh, the most? Of course, my family. I mean. Was it? Was it, though? <laughs> Honestly, like, was it the most popular, I guess, is what I'm asking. Like, just to give, an, uh, just to give a comparison, like, uh, in American bluegrass music, like, Bill Monroe is, like, the grandfather of that. And then, then you have, like, um, Del McCurry and his family. You know, like there's, there's certain families that really establish themselves within certain musical traditions. And is it similar there? And like, was your family like on a you know name recognition basis? And yes, they were. I don't. I wouldn't say they were the first, the top, because there was one family that was able to make it into television and films, which made them more famous because their faces were seen more, right, you know, on right. the screen. So I would say our family was probably second or third. Okay, but not- definitely name recognition. If you said the last name, everyone within the community would know who you are. Yeah, it's not a bad place to be. So, mm-hmm. what about you at school? What were, you know? What was that like for you when you were in you know home in Moscow, and you're at school? Did you have like a good experience there and get a good education and stuff? You know, not really. I dropped out when I was twelve. And mostly because I was getting into many fights. Were you really? <laughs> yes. Like like father, like daughter. <laughs> Just throwing punches. Well, you know, I had... When I first started going to school, my parents sat me down and they said, don't tell people anything about your Romani blood. Just tell them you're Greek, Armenian. That's safe, you know. And so I didn't ask why I shouldn't tell. And then when I was... I think I was... I don't know, nine or ten or so. Somebody found out because my grandmother was singing on the radio... And one of the parents of the kids heard the last name, and they said, oh, this 
this girl, she goes to school, you know, the granddaughter. I didn't know they were gypsies. So then it's like all hell just broke loose. I was getting beat up all the time. and Just for being a gypsy know? or yes. being a Romani? Yes. And gypsies, like, that's a pejorative term. So people like, well, what is the thing? They just look down on that culture and say, I guess it never makes any sense. It's- I don't think so. I'm still trying to make sense of it. Yeah. I mean, there are some old, really, really uh, prevalent stereotypes and people can't seem to get them out of their heads. It's kind of like, you know, when people used to believe that the world was flat. Yeah. It's that kind of a... a a sense of, you know, this is how it is a hundred percent. Yeah. Well, you know what? And the other thing too, the other big thing is that it's just clearly taught. You're not born with these sorts of prejudices. You know what I'm no. saying? Like somebody just drills that into your head and you're either uh, too lazy or too dumb to undrill it. I, I, you know what I'm saying? Or you don't have an opportunity to get educated, but, um, it just drives me nuts. But isn't that how it is with pretty much everything? I mean, yeah, well, everything like, yeah, I mean, like with prejudice, yeah, but also, I guess, with any kind of ignorance, I mean, you know, somewhere along the way. Anything at all. Think about this. I homeschool. I can teach my kids anything at all. I can tell them that the world, in fact, is flat and they will believe me. Right. Because I'm the parent and I'm teaching them. So that's how much responsibility we have as adults, first of all. Oh, God, Um, don't tell me this. I'm sorry. I'm starting to palpitate. (laughs) I, I mean, we do. It. We have more responsibility than we think we do. Like, we think we can say anything, you know, and it kind of just will everything fall in, into place the way it's supposed to. Yeah, you know, like, the, I think my approach, and I, I hear what you're saying. I mean, I think we obviously have a huge responsibility. And, like, I think uh, the more conscious you are of it, the better. But I think uh, ultimately or predominantly what I do rather than what I say is going to be the most important do you know what I'm saying? Yes. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's it. Like the example I set, like I can try to tell her, I mean, especially when she gets to be like older and an adolescent, I can talk at her all day long. But I think just like my example, or at least that's how I think about it now, just like be good and do good. And if she sees that, most of the rest of it will take care of itself, assuming she gets like a good education, you know? Well, yes. That's... Yeah. I'm trying to make my life easy. Don't you see? <laughs> All I got to do is just, you know, not freak out and tell some jokes and we'll be good. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I've, I've, I've thought about this a lot since the book, you know, even more so. Um, and I do agree with you, like doing um, definitely gives the, the, a better example. And then I realized that, you know, we grow up and we basically actually never do grow up. It's like things that are going on in the world right now. If you look at things that people are doing and saying, adults who should know better. They're acting like children. So it's like this perpetual childhood that we're just stuck in. Well, and this is the thing, too. I've had this conversation recently is that and, – and I don't mean to look down my nose or sound terribly snobbish because I think there's a place for everything and I'm uh, accepting of both high and low culture. But just generally, like broadly, uh, this embrace by adults of comic book culture and – vampires. And I mean, like I taught college and I remember a survey came out and it was like college freshmen, you know, this is a few years ago, but college freshmen were asked to name their 10 favorite books. And like five of them were Harry Potter books. <laughs> and so it's like, it feels like there's this like kind of this infantilization of our culture where like everyone is a child. And I don't know that something about that just hits me wrong. Sometimes it's like, wait a minute, like that we need to be, I mean, I think a little bit of that is fine, but when like, you know, six out of 10 of your favorite books are books that you're supposed to be reading when you're 12. And when, um, you know, the movies that everybody's running to go out to see, uh, you know, movies that 30 year old people and, you know, and older are running mm-hmm. out to see are like Batman. And, you know, yeah. th- I guess that's fine. I mean, I want to go see Batman, but I just wonder sometimes if like, 
that's a reflection of something deeper. It is. And I mean, in a way that makes it easier to control us, you know, if we're paying attention to so many frivolous things and kind of running after this, you know, uh, mainstream culture that's just giving to us and we're told that this is great, you know, go see that or go read this. Right. We don't see other things that are more important. Yeah. And it's like, it's like, that's the other thing too, is that I feel like there's like increasingly this race to identify what is the big thing that's being, you know, shoveled toward us. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the culture, whatever is the hot topic, whatever is the hot movie, there's this race online that I feel uh, to a ingest it and then b comment about it, especially in the writer class, because that leads to more web traffic and blah blah blah. Yeah, I think I've even talked about this on this show before, but mm-hmm. you know, I get that sense where like everyone is sort of devouring all this stuff, and it makes me nervous and it makes me want to run the other way. And it's not always justified because sometimes it's like, dude, why don't you just see this movie? It's actually really good. Mm-hmm. But like, I sort of like reflexively recoil and I'm like, I don't want to be ingesting what everyone else is ingesting or what's coming down the pipes at like, you know, it, everywhere I turn, it's on like a billboard, it's on my TV, it's on my computer screen. Like I'm automatically turned off by that in some weird way, just because I worry about what it means instinctively in ways that I can't even properly express. <laughs> I told, I understand exactly what you're saying. I mean, I think what's happening now is um, we're getting further and fur- further away from our, sel- our, our sense of self. We're losing our identities very, very quickly. And this is what we're passing on to our kids, you know, is that they're not so much sure of what, who they are, where they come from. You are Elmo. That's who you are. <laughs> you know, the roots are lost. It's like you're after all of these things and... Um, you get further away from what actually makes you happy. And then when you get older, much older, you start looking for it again, you know, and, and you're like, what am I about? I want to look for it now. This is how I've always felt. I don't want to put these things off. I want to have my midlife crisis when I'm like 24. <laughs> well, why do you say it's a crisis? It's no, a good I just, thing. You know, but there's like the old like adage that like, you know, you turn 40. And I remember distinctly being like 24, being like, I'm having it now. I'm just getting it out of the way, you know, but then... Um, you know, life in a way is sort of a life crisis. And I say that somewhat tongue in cheek, but, hmm. um, you know, I, it's like, why wait? Like, I think like, why not act with the wisdom of an old person now? Just read people, you know, who are wise and who are older and then try to emulate them. You see what I'm saying? Or look at kids because they're just like old people. Right. If you think about it, we just go in a circle. Right. We start out really smart, actually pretty wise. We know what we want and we get it you know, as as much as we can as children. And then we kind of get away from that. And then we wait for like 40 years and then starts all over again. Christ. You know, we don't care about, like as a kid, you don't care about what other people think about you. So what you're saying is we're right now, you and I are in the middle of the dark period. Yes. (laughs) Medieval ages. (laughs) That's for sure. This is the most lost I will ever feel. That's kind of nice. (laughs) Hopefully it's, there's nowhere to go but up from here. So, um, okay. So let's bring this around full circle, uh, back to your biography and being in the Soviet Union at the time of its dissipation. Like, when did you leave to come to the States? We left right before the Soviet Union fell apart. Okay, so take me inside those moments. And obviously your perspective was a bit limited, I would imagine, with respect to, like, the, the politics and, yeah. the, you know. But was there a sense, like, how did you know to leave? Like, was there a sense that it was coming apart to the average citizen? Or was it something that, like, happened suddenly and shocked everybody? There definitely was. And actually, it's very, very... There was what? There was a sense of surprise? There was a sense. No, no, no. There was a sense of doom, like something is coming. And it reminds me a lot of what's going on now for some reason. 
like kind of just unease between within the people, um, confusion, um, basic things like uh, food getting worse in the stores, you know, the quality of food, the quality of life getting worse. All of those things were gradually happening years before Soviet Union fell apart. Jesus, that's scary. I know. I tell people here, you know, my a lot of my American friends, when we talk about anything, economics, politics, you know, entertainment, whatever, um, it seems like it's, we're going a little bit downhill yeah, like in no, every aspect. Right? I think so, too. And you watch, like, the media circus, and you think about, um, uh, you know, I think about Rome. I mean, it's such an obvious comparison with the United States, but you watch how things turned out there where they're just like – you know, throwing people to the lions and the Coliseum and yeah. not that we're doing quite that, but uh, you know, in some ways we probably are. And I just feel like the culture is, I don't know. I think there's some bad signs. I don't think that it's irreversible. Like I'm sort of like eternally optimistic that things could be turned around if people noticed and demanded otherwise. But I think that if you, I think inattention to it could be potentially really disastrous. Well, that's the thing is that somebody has to notice it and do something about it. What should we See. do? Let's do something. <laughs> We're starting a revolution right now. Um, you know, it's hard to say. It's hard to say exactly what to do other than I think maybe to talk about it like this and just recognize it among friends. You know, if people start to realize, like, you know, things need to be different. But then at the same time, there's a part of me that would look to, like, the political world. And I think maybe a big function of what we're talking about is that I think people are increasingly just like the political class is useless. They can't get anything done in America. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, and when was this different? Um, I think that, I think there, I mean, I think there's always been probably troubles with it, but it seems like particularly polarized and paralyzed, you know, at this point, mm -hmm. we're just like the most mundane things can't get done, you know, like very basic pieces of legislation that nobody should have a disagreement over just sort of freeze up. And there doesn't seem to be any sense of urgency on the part of, um, you know, legislators to get something done for people who are out of work or whatever, you know. And that's exactly what was happening in the Soviet Union. See, that's the thing. It's like this uh, quiet before a storm. And if you look at the governments, like if you look at historically any country and you take the most active period within the government, it's usually, it's always during the crisis. It's during a crisis, um, a war, a revolution, what have you. It's never when it's just a nice, calm period within the country. And I think that's kind of what's happening now is that something is going to happen and people are going to kind of wake up even in the government and be like, oh, now we have to actually do something. start do so doing something. Well, so aren't you glad you came here? So you left yeah. one and now you're here. Yeah, for exactly. <laughs> you can't escape. Next wait a minute. Mars. And wait a minute. Yeah. It's you. Wherever you go, this happens. <laughs> Holy shit. Well, come on. Rome, uh, how long did it take Rome to fall? Yeah. It's Hundreds like, of years. It's like a slow motion thing. So, chaos. We have some time. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's like yeah, we get like a disaster in slow motion. And but. maybe we can reverse it. I was actually talking to someone who is considered kind of a a wise man within the Romani community, an older gentleman, and he was saying that the secret, you know, to fixing all of this that we're unhappy with, is to paying more attention to our children. <laughs> okay. He says you you go back, and you you go to the very basics. I think we need to read more books. <laughs> Stop watching TV. You know what I'm saying? I think books. I think if people read a book a week, I think that would be helpful. But maybe that's a self-serving. What kind idea. of a book, though? Good books. Again, well, not that's not like you know. Yeah, I mean, like substantive books that cause you to confront life and death and like actual serious stuff. You know what I'm saying? And and then occasionally like a beach read. Like I'm not a total, um, you know, I'm not totally stodgy about it. But I think that like, you know, really well considered. 
works of literature enrich a person's life. And uh, I say that like not only like in a, you know, I'm not trying to sound like I'm lecturing. Uh, I'm saying that to myself as much as I'm saying that generally to others. You know what I'm saying? I feel like I need to read more and I need to stop watching so much uh, TV and stop looking at the internet so much. I know I'm getting pretty addicted to those. Yeah. Both of those things. It's hard not to be. So does this mean that you've read Fifty Shades of Grey? No, but I've like <laughs> talked about it and I've thought about it. And, uh, you know, I talked to, who was I talking to? Someone, like, well, it was a, a friend of mine who's female. And she was saying that it was like the hottest thing ever. And that everybody, every woman she knows who's read it has read it and has been like completely randy after reading it. And it was like this big thing. And she's like, I totally see what the fuss is all about. Really? Which is like, now I'm like, should I get this from my wife? Like, what should I, <laughs> I would suggest not. No. Yeah. Have you read it? Um, I only read a, pa- a few of the free pages on Amazon for research. Of course. Um, you don't have to qualify <laughs> it. No, I was just, I, it was an accident. I had no idea what I was reading. My eyes just <laughs> slipped to the screen. <laughs> right. You know, I, I have to tell you that I've read uh, racier things. Yeah. It's just, it's not... That I don't know why so many but women. 30, get 30 million readers. Like I, I'm, a, you know, uh, once once you get past a certain point, I tend to believe in the wisdom of a crowd. Maybe like there's got to be something in it that's happening. If this or, or is it just some crazy anomaly? Like it's like Haley's comet. Just people just jumped on this thing, and this weird cosmic subconscious energy took over. You know, it's like Harry Potter. Like. I think those books are redeeming. Um, you know, I think those are yeah. actually well written or whatever. And there's there's a lot to be admired there. And I'm glad that like kids find those things. So they're reading. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean, that's substantive. But like you know, when 30 million people glom onto something, you got to wonder why. You know, exactly. Because even if it's like being shoveled at them uh, every which way in the media, it's still they still have to read it, spend the time, and like it, and talk about it. You know, ultimately, word of mouth mm-hmm. has to happen. So. I think some of it has to do with the fact that it was written based on the Twilight series, and Twilight has such a huge following yeah. that there's a lot of people, the fans, that are kind of primed. Yeah. And, and as they age, like they're like, okay, I can graduate to this, maybe. <laughs> this is the next step. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm so over my like tween phase. <laughs> I don't uh, think I ever had one. <laughs> no. Okay, so uh, talk about coming to the United States. Like, talk about that transition because that must have been jarring. It was because you, you moved to Los Angeles. We yes, we moved to Hollywood, and um, see everything that we kind of knew about the way American life was. Um, we we saw it on TV in the movies, you know, in all of those VHS tapes. So there was a lot of MTV videos, and there was a lot of um, '80s, you know, films that are you know like Freddy Krueger and all of that. Sure. Um, so that was our America. That's what we were imagining, <laughs> right? You know, and so. My parents were under the impression they were going to be really rich here because they were already that in the Soviet Union. And I think when you have a lot, you don't think you'll ever really lose it. You know, mm-hmm. you just think you're just going to go on in this comfort zone that you're in, doing the stuff that you do wherever you are. So they just assumed that it was going to be this really simple transition. They're just going to come here, and Americans are going to love them, and uh, you know they're going to become famous. In fact, my dad, during our interview at the American Embassy, uh, we had to pass this interview to come here. Um, he told our interviewer that he's going to play with B.B. King. That was like his thing. I'm going to go to America. <laughs> of I'm going to play with B.B. King, you know, because that's just the way things go for me. Um, and if you don't like it, I'll knock you out. Or, yes. <laughs> yes. No, he was really nice that day. Yeah, of course. You know, surprisingly. And uh, 
when we came here, it's like we realized that it was completely different. Like everybody was in the same boat. It's it's L.A. Everybody's trying to play with B.B. King. You yeah. know, everybody's yeah. trying to become famous. And there's tons of really good musicians. Uh, and they're all allowed to play rock and roll. So it was pretty shocking for us. Well, you know, you know, know? the thing I've always noticed about Los Angeles is that if you ever go here people sing karaoke mm -hmm. the quality of the karaoke singing in los angeles is extraordinary it like, is you can watch people get up there and you're like they're, they're, you can see how they're like not quite good enough to be mm -hmm. superstars but they're really good compared to like the average drunk idiot like singing you know you should go to karaoke in vegas <laughs> if even you better see those oh yeah no if you want to see the latter yeah 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 it's pretty bad but i mean even people in the streets you know everybody's a model everybody looks really good people dress and i mean it was similar in moscow because moscow was kind of the, the hub the fashion hub of the soviet union you sure. know? so you had those special loafers that you got you know in a special store that nobody else could get right um but here it's you know we lost that identity they my parents they lost what they were um there they were recognized musicians and here it was just one of million um, so the transition was difficult for them and for me because that's what I witnessed, this instability. Well, yeah. When you lose like, your identity, I mean, like that is, I mean, that, that's actually like a really deep topic. Like people, <laughs> no, I mean, I mean it seriously, like people's perception of themselves and who they think they are. And when that gets removed from you, that has profound psychological effects. You yes. Know? Like I can totally see how difficult that would be. And. You know, I'm thinking of something completely unrelated, uh, and I don't even know. Once again, I'm drawing on some weird memory of something I read, but it, it had to do with like uh, prisoners. Uh, you know, when you're, they're trying to get prisoners to sort of uh, what, what's it called? You know, become turncoats or whatever, and to like sign confessions to things that they didn't even do. There are like ways to do you know do that that involve like the uh, the wearing down of a person's identity. So I mean. All of which is to say that, you know, I can imagine going from being a celebrity in Russia and coming and all of a sudden finding yourself in the middle of a sea of people wanting to be celebrities yes. and thinking to yourself, how am I going to distinguish mm -hmm. myself in this crowd? That must have been hugely traumatic. It is. And, you know, we have a lot of conversation on immigration issues and everything. And um, I see those people, you know, no matter where they come from and how they end up in a different country, they're all going through that. Because every person that comes goes somewhere else uh, to a different culture and a country, they will lose at least part of their identity. Yeah. And it's the only time you realize that you actually needed one, you know, or, or had one. It's really weird because you never really think about it until you go somewhere and it's taken away. Right. And all of a sudden you're nothing. Right. You, know, you could have been, a you know, a sultan in your country and then you come here and that's it. Nobody you're, you're cares. You're just a hu person and sometimes not even considered a human being, you know, depending on your situation. So um, I think that influenced my parents' just lives for the rest of, of their being, you know, living in the United States. Yeah. And so um, what about you going to school here? And, like, what about home life? Like, I mean, did your parents' relationships suffer through that? And did you, like, was there a lot of turmoil in the house and stuff? There was because my parents decided to divorce as soon as we got here. My father said that he had a mistress in the Soviet Union and he was going to go and bring her and marry her. So as soon as we got here, just when we needed a, the family unit at least to be whole, um, we were just kind of torn apart. And it's my mom, myself, and my sister in this place where we don't know anyone and we don't speak the language. Where did you live? Um, Lexington in Hollywood. Yeah, Lexington yeah, yeah. and I can't remember the other street. Okay. 
It was. And how did you survive? How did you get by? Was there money from saved up from the Soviet Union days? There was a little money saved up. We cu- we actually could not bring savings here. Like you actually had to leave your money behind. <laughs> That's how the government worked. Uh-huh. Like you couldn't say, well, I'm going to transfer some money from my bank or something. No, no. You, you can take this much and the rest is going to go back to us because you're leaving. Um, so we didn't have very much, just a little bit. Um, mostly we survived through the kindness of other people. You know, there were people, we lived in an apartment building. Nobody really spoke English. It was mostly a Hispanic speaking, you know, neighborhood. Um, and those were the people who helped us out. You know, they brought us toasters, a table, and chairs, and just basic necessities. Jesus. Yeah, it was That's kind of heartwarming, though. It's nice. It to, was. You know? Because people, most of most of those people, don't. they didn't have much themselves. But, it's, you know, see, that's the thing. It's people who don't have anything or who have known what, it's, what it means to not have anything who are the ones, I think, who are most likely to help in a lot of instances. Because they're very close to the bottom. Well, like they, they know what it, it feels like. There's just an empathy, and I feel like, mm-hmm. you know... I feel like any kind of creature comfort, any kind of wealth insulates people. And what I think is strange, and I've borne witness to this, is that I think there are people who have struggled who will never forget what it means to struggle. And they carry it with them in a good way, and they uh, realize a kind of empathy as a result that I think is like what makes the world go around. You need to have yeah. that, you know, that kind of connection to other people and that understanding of you know, the fact that we need to reach out to one another. But I do think that there are people who have struggled and who then go on to get out of whatever bad situation they were in and who become wealthy or relatively wealthy by comparison who forget. It's like it has this insulating effect and it, it's a disconnecting kind of thing. And I, I I guess what I wonder is like, what does it take to maintain that connectivity and that empathy? Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, I don't know if, uh, I don't know if you've seen similar stuff in your life, but it seems that way to me. I have. I mean, I do have uh, family friends who who had done very well in the past and they were kind of on their own. You know, they didn't want to deal with everybody else who might need help. Um, and sometimes I think they do that because they're afraid. They're, they're afraid to get pulled it's in contagious. back into it. I'm serious. <laughs> I think so too. I think that's the truth. I think yeah. like, cause it's very easy to be like, Oh, they're just cold. But a lot of it means they're just afraid. Mm-hmm. It scares them to have to look at people struggling or to actually deal with it because maybe their identity is built on, you know, not having to struggle and to have to confront the possibility that they might someday somehow is too painful or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, right. but that's a shame, you know, mm-hmm. there's so many people in the world who are so screwed. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I think we all are. A yeah, little bit. <laughs> I think we all are a little bit, but I mean, like, I just like, sometimes I'll sit there and I'll, I'll start to do the math and I'll think of all these people in third world countries and I'll think of just all the human suffering. It's like, it's just, it's overwhelming. And, and it, yet most of us don't even really think about it on a daily basis. It's like, sometimes you'll think about it, but most of the time we're so busy doing our own thing. Right. You know, worrying about our own things and That's one of the weird like blessings I think of living in a big city though is that you get con- you have to confront that. Like I have to confront that to a degree on a daily basis in Los Angeles just because there is there are people sleeping in the streets everywhere, you know. There's a lot of people sleeping in the streets downtown, so mm-hmm. you know, you can't avoid it as easily as you can in other places and so you know, I'm trying to like figure out how to best proceed on that front, but it feels like we can do so much better. It wouldn't take very much. No. That's the funny thing, you know, is that it it would take very little effort 
to help someone. I think we're all afraid. That's I mean, not because we're all bad people or anything, but it is this fear of dealing with something that you you don't want to exist. Yeah. You know, you don't want to see the pain or the suffering. Right. And it's just easier not to approach it if you don't have to. Right. You know. Right. Well, what what happened then? Well, once you guys, you know, your your folks split up. You're living in Hollywood. You start going to school. I went to a Hollywood high school. Oh, you did? Okay. Yes. A very famous <laughs> list of uh, alumni. You've now, you've now joined a very notable list of alumni. I know. I loved the school. I didn't, I, when I was there, I didn't realize how big of a history it had. Who I went there? I mean, like, did Michael Jackson go there? Michael no? Jackson. I think he did. Yeah. And Cher. Right. Um, David Bowie. Okay. I mean, there's like a, a huge list. David of, Bowie went there? Yes. I read that somewhere, that he used to wear dresses and and go to school wearing dresses and okay you know that was just like his persona back then <laughs> <laughs> hey whatever works part of his and uh um it's a long list i can't remember like all of the people but people think, started telling I think me that. john ritter of uh what's the what's the show three's company I want to say he's a famous, I want to, they have his painting, I think on the side of the gymnasium now or something. Oh, really? I want to say that. Yeah. I know Brandy did, you know, the singer. Because I went, she was like a year behind me or something. So I remember her before she became the famous, you know, polished singer that she was. I remember her running around like a skinny little kid Uh singing in the hallways. Oh, wow. So yeah, there's a lot of me. Yeah. It's, It's sort of like a storied place to have gone. So you had a good experience with it? I did. It was much better than the, my experience in Soviet Union because I dropped out when I was 12 back in Soviet Union. Right. So when we came here, I was like, well, I'm just not going to go to school. And my mom thought, well, you can't do that. We're in America and everybody in America goes to school, you know. And so she forced me to go. And I went, um, I think I was 15 or 16 that I started up school again. And because of my interaction with other people and the acceptance that I kind of saw, um, I started doing better, you know. I didn't. I didn't actually have any kind of negative experiences. Um, nothing alike to what I experienced in the Soviet Union. So, how did you school. pick up the language? You spoke no English. I didn't speak any English, and I started going to the ESL program, which is the English as a Second Language program. And um, I decided that wasn't for me because nobody in the class spoke English. You know, you had a teacher who's an American, and she's trying to teach everyone else how to speak English. Um, and I had this goal worked out, especially after my parents divorced. I was like, well, I, I have to get some of this control back. So my goal was to become an American. You know, I'm going to do, I'm going to take these steps to become an American. And in my mind, that meant that I need to learn the language first. Right. So I told my teacher and I said, you know, uh, this ESL classes are just too slow. I need something faster. Um, and I was trying to read classics like Jane Eyre and, and stuff, but I couldn't understand, obviously, you know, because the language is... Completely. I think most Americans or many Americans wouldn't understand books like that. You know, you have to look at the words that are outdated. Right. Um, and she said, well, you know, those books are fine. But as a person, as someone who doesn't speak the language yet, that would be very difficult to understand. So why don't you start with something simple like romance novels? So I actually learned most of my English by reading romance novels. Wow. And they were historical romance novels. Danielle Steele taught you how to be an American. <laughs> I used to use, I had this vocabulary the first like year of being here. I would say parasol in front instead of a, uh, an umbrella, you know, <laughs> sauntering instead yes. of walking, you know, and my, my friends in school, you know, they would say, well, what they wouldn't even know what the word meant. 
Right. And then I came across certain phrases that I couldn't understand, and I could not find in a dictionary in the romance novels. And they're usually phrases during the sexual scenes. You know, they have say, the, yeah. the burning loins. <laughs> <laughs> because I had the dictionary, and I was trying to translate it. It translated into uh, burnt pork chops. I just could not put that together what was going on in the scene. What does burning pork chops have to do with them kissing? Right, know? right, yeah. So it was a pretty hilarious experience, but... It know, worked. It worked. It was effective. Mm-hmm. How quickly did you get fluent? I think the first three years, within the first three years. Yeah, but three years still. Done. I mean, you know, you have to work at it. I mean, you have to work yeah. at it just to get fluent, period. But three years is still three years' time. That's mm-hmm. not a, It's no small amount. Um, so what happened ultimately with your folks? Like, what did your dad stay here and try to pursue a musical career? Did your mom, like what happened with them? My dad is still here and hopefully he won't be listening to any kind of radio anytime soon. But, um, what he did is he did go back and get his mistress from former Soviet union. And she was Romani, unlike my mother. Um, but she did fortune. She was a fortune teller. That's what she did for a living. And so they opened a psychic shop here. And he figured that he couldn't become a musician because there was just so much competition. And he was already in his 40s. Uh-huh. So he was, by Hollywood stand- standards, just too old. You know? Yeah, he wasn't going to be in a boy band or exactly. anything. So he said, fine, you know, let's let's do this. And they had great, I mean, they they were really successful. They have They had a lot of clients. And then my dad got into more serious stuff like exorcisms and, you know, spiritual Can he healings. really do all that stuff? I saw him do it, yes. I, I still don't know. Like, if you ask me, do I believe? Um, but, I mean, was he doing this prior to opening this shop, or was it something like, okay, we'll try this now? Or He was, because my um, my great-grandmother used to do it. Um, I mean, this was, you know, over 100 years ago. She was a psychic. So right. he believed that it was kind of a gift that ran in the family, um, and he always dabbled in it. Do you have any of that? I do not do exorcisms. No, but, I mean, do you have any <laughs> psychic abilities, do you feel like? Sometimes I do, but I think we all do. We just shut them off most of the time because we don't trust ourselves. Like, um, I was doing this presentation um, in front of a lot of um, senior citizens. And they they asked me, you know, do you believe in the spiritual stuff and, and the exorcisms and all of that, ghosts and demons and all of that? And I said, well, if you believe that your pets can predict that something is bad something bad is about to happen raise your hand and the entire room they raise their hand you know oh yes yes our pets our cat our dog right away you know 100% right and i said well if you believe that your pets have this kind of a sixth sense why wouldn't you give yourself the same credit i mean we are all animals yeah. i mean well and i've had things happen and i'm i'm the sad thing is that i'm struggling to remember but it's like it can be weird things uh, but they're in a, they're unexplainable. Where I'll exactly. th- I'll think of a song and it'll come on, or you know, there's there's something to that. I don't know how much. Or like, I had oh, I had an uh, I've had an experience where I predicted that a friend of mine was pregnant, hadn't talked to her in months and months and months, and just was sitting here and was like, oh my god, she's pregnant. And I texted her and I was like, are you pregnant? She was like, my doctor just called me with the results. Like you know, like literally, like wow. yeah. So I mean. So how would you explain that? How do you explain that? I don't know. It freaked me out. I mean, I was like completely spun out by it. But at the same time, like those sorts of things have happened to me enough that every once in a while I get one and I don't know why, but I could not read, you know, your life or anything like that. I don't have that kind of ability, but I have been to a psychic who could, and Mm -hmm. she didn't bat a thousand. You know what I'm saying? Like not everything she said to me 
um, unfolded. It wasn't a hundred percent accurate, but like it was uncanny, you know, it was uncanny in what it was right about. And it was uncanny to the degree that you, you know, it goes beyond just like logical explanation. She could see something somehow. She picked, you know, predicted things somehow, you know. I do believe that, that we are, some people are just more open and more connected. Yeah. Um, just like, like animals are, you know, they have that kind of a sense. Right. They have the antenna, their antenna works. Exactly. More of the time. And, you know, for most people, if you ask them, if you say, you know, have you ever had this feeling where you're going somewhere, but something's telling you not to, and then something happens and almost every person will say yes. Right. It's just, we don't listen. We don't pay attention to ourselves at all, you know? as a spiritual being because we we don't know what it is so we kind of just brush it off and think that that means that you're superstitious just because you're listening you know but i mean i do i i don't um actively you know read fortunes or anything like that i don't have that kind of a gift but i definitely try to listen to my own intuition and you know things that are going around me uh, just notice things a little bit more right 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 no i think i'm the same way i you know i, I hope i'm the same way you know, trying, just trying to pay better attention, period, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so what about your mom? Did she, I mean, she, did she stay here? She's in Vegas. She moved to Vegas. The first two years she was here, um, mostly because she wanted a regular job and she wanted to open a business and she called it boosiness. Um, a boosiness? Yes. <laughs> and she told me the story when she went to Vegas, she, uh, made this, um, uh, slot machine out of cardboard and she, it was like a prototype of a talking machine, right? She had this idea that a machine would talk to you and you would play with it, right? And she took it to a casino, to a manager somewhere on the floor, you know? And she said, I have this idea for a, for a slot machine. And she called them slot machines. <laughs> <laughs> I have this slot machine that I really want somebody to make. And the guy said, oh, well, nobody's going to want to play with a talking machine, you know? <laughs> And now when you go to Vegas, they're all over the place, right? Right. So she swears that somebody took her idea. Hey, you know. You know. And she should cash in somehow. Isn't there, you, this is a very litigious culture. She can hire a lawyer. Well, Show them the cardboard slot machine. Yes. She doesn't <laughs> have it anymore. But she did boycott the casinos for two months. Yeah. She wouldn't go in and play. Yeah. So um, you live in Vegas too? Yes. You like mm-hmm. it there? That's home? I love it. Yes. I used to. It was a long thing. Um I really kind of didn't like it in the beginning, and I kept wanting to come back to L.A. because this was home. Um, but Vegas is really where I found my family, you know, my friends. And a, I love it. Yeah. You live in like, – where do you live? Like, you live outside of town? Like, outside um, of the Strip? Or do you live – Oh, yeah. Yeah. Somebody actually asked me a few days ago if I live in the casino. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to ask you that. Good. Because then they said, well, do, you, do they fly you into work? <laughs> like from somewhere else then? Like if you live outside? Like they couldn't imagine that there was an actual city yeah. outside of the Strip. But no. So what part of town do you live in? Like in Las um, Green Valley. Okay. I don't know if you're familiar. Henderson, Green Valley. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they used to be suburbs, but now the city is so much bigger that it's kind of part of it. I mean, everything's really close. The Strip is about 15 minutes away. Yeah. So, so when you wrote this book... Did you uh, write it in your native language or did you write it in English? Or is, is English? English, you, English, yes. You sat down and wrote this thing in English. English is my native language now. It is. Okay. Yes. I mean, that's interesting to hear you say. Like, so you never speak, was it Russian? I mean, that's. I the, speak Russian and I speak Armenian okay. because my family members still speak that. Um, but I think in English and, you know, the immediate thoughts that come to my mind, like if I'm trying to write something, everything is in English. 
So now I have to think before I speak Russian to make sure that I say it right. Interesting. It's really weird. And I actually, when I went to college um, right out of high school, I wanted to test out of the language part, you know, so that way I don't have to do the language requirement. And I thought, well, this is going to be easy. I'm just going to take the Russian test and I'm fine. Well, I got a C on my Russian test. And I, <laughs> I was sure it was a mistake. So I went to the teacher and I'm like, well, you know, I speak Russian. That's where I'm from. And you gave me a C. And she said, well, you're speaking Russian as if you're speaking English. You're not actually speaking Russian anymore. Wow. So it kind of flipped where I became a foreigner to the country that I that I'm from. Yeah. Where did you go to college? UNLV, University of Las Vegas. Okay. So you were in Vegas then yeah. too. And how was that? Was that, I mean, that must've been fun, like fun, right? It was. I went to the music department first and then I switched to film and started making movies, you know, my own independent little shorts. <laughs> <laughs> right, of course. So that was a lot of fun. Yeah. I did. I was a film, a uh, film major in undergrad too. It was like me, like, you know, filming a squirrel with a Bolex or whatever, you know. Is it really the most useless degree? Do you think? Uh, it's up there. I mean, you know, it depends what you, you know, when it, when it comes to the arts, ultimately it just comes down to you doing stuff. So school is unnecessary, I think, uh, but it can be helpful. You know what I'm saying? So mm -hmm. like I, I, there are parts of it that I think were really helpful. Just having the time to sort of dick around and think about that kind of thing and spend the time making films and spend the time thinking about storytelling and spend the time just being social and meeting people and, you know, having that time is probably, you know, something extremely valuable. Uh, or there are parts of it that are extremely valuable. But, <laughs> you know, when it comes to writing a book, like just as you know, ultimately you have to sit there. It's a, it's a matter of psychological discipline, physical yes. discipline. You have mm -hmm. to sit there and do it every day. And no one can teach you how to do that. They can just sort of point you in the direction a little bit. You're right. That reminds me when I sold the book, I, I only had about 50 pages of it. So it sold before I finished it. And one of the first questions I asked my editor, I said, well, do I need to take some writing classes? You know, and she said, well, you already sold the book. So <laughs> you're a little too late because I, I was in that under that impression that you would have to have a formal education to write a book. You know, it's just like any other skill. Yeah. Um, but uh, where I come from, it's what you said, you know, you don't really need an education. It just depends on how much you want to do something um, in my case in my family, you know, everyone was a performer and that's what they did a hundred percent of the time. It wasn't like they were an accountant and then sometimes a musician, right? You were a musician right. period, whether you made money that month or not. Yeah. And my grandfather, my grandmother never had another job in their life. Wow. Same thing with my father. Well, until he came here. Right. So the first 30 years of his life, he was on stage and it's that mentality, you know, that I don't see here as much, you know, here it seems like in the United States and in most westernized countries, it's kind of like, well, I'm going to be something stable and then I'll pursue my dream on the side. You know, and how many years does it take to pursue your dream on the side? Yeah, yeah, I know. And, and yeah. plus, like, it's just like, if you're going to, I mean, I, I, people do it. People write books on the side over the course of 10 years and they publish and, you know, that there there are those stories. But for me, it's like it requires so much. Uh, it's It's really hard to do. I think it's, yeah. you know, and it's like you wind up working two full-time jobs, even if you're not actually, uh, when you parse out the hours spending 16 hours a day working, but like just the energy that you expend, you know, like, uh, it's a lot, it's a lot to bear.
So, but at the same time, you have to expend that energy. You have no choice. I mean, to, unless to you have the money, the, you yeah. have no choice. So, I mean, you know, which brings up the question, I guess, like in Vegas, you've published this book. Um, you're homeschooling two kids, mm-hmm. so there's no way you're doing anything else, right? I mean, are you not, not right now. Not right now. Not, not yet. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I have had so much fun talking with you, Me and too. I congratulate you on this book, and I uh, wish you all the best of luck with it, and I wish you all the best of luck in Las Vegas. Thank you. All right, you guys, there you go. That is the program. That is Oksana Marafioti. Go get her memoir. It is called American Gypsy. It is available now from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. You can find Oksana on the web at OksanaMarafioti.com. She's on Facebook, and she's also on the Twitter at Oksana Marafioti. This program has a website. It is uh, OtherPeoplePod.com. It has a Twitter feed at OtherPeoplePod. I have a Twitter feed at Brad Listy. The show has a Facebook presence, and if you'd like to email me, uh, and tell me something. The address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Thank you to Kill Rockstars, as always, for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And that is all I've got for today. It is late here. It is hot. It is warm. I hear helicopters. There are helicopters in the skies over Los Angeles in the middle of the night. What is happening? What is going on? What is happening on Mars? I keep thinking about Mars, all of these photographs that I keep seeing uh, on the Internet. That show me Mars. Are you thinking about Mars? Can you dance with a neutral facial expression? Please remember that Elizabeth Bishop died of an aneurysm and that Joseph Cornell lived with his mother his entire life. I will be back again soon with another program, ladies and gentlemen. Episode 98, I believe. That is it for now. I'm signing off. This is the end. This is the punctuation mark. This is the period at the end of the sentence. This is the closing moment. This is the ellipsis.